Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, the economy, and the environment. In 2018, climate broke through the headlines with fire and water. Over a thousand people unaccounted for in Northern California after a fast-moving wildfire demolished the small town of Paradise. Mandatory and evacuations along the Florida Panhandle ahead of Hurricane Michael. This is a Michael fast is mover. It's also going to bring a lot of rain to the Carolinas, possibly areas that are already just completely soaked. And conversations about how to adapt and thrive became more important than ever. It's really hard to rebuild a normal life when your job is disrupted, you don't have housing, you're trying to rebuild, but the resources aren't there. What we are needing now is funding to build a much more resilient city because there will be another storm. Climate change is real. A year of climate conversations, up next on Climate One. I'm Devin Strolovich. Climate One Conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. On today's special episode, we look back at the climate stories of 2018 by listening to excerpts from a year of climate conversations, beginning with the fires in the American West. Higher temperatures and lower humidity brought on by climate change are whipping up hotter and bigger wildfires, taking damage to property, people, and ecosystems to a new level. In September, Greg spoke to Lizzie Johnson, a staff writer at the San Francisco Chronicle, where covering wildfires is now a full-time, year-round beat, and to UC Berkeley professor of fire science, Scott Stevens, who's written about managing fire and forests in a changing climate. They began their conversation by hearing from Catlin Tucker, a part-time teacher who survived the 2017 Tubbs fire north of San Francisco that killed more than 20 people and destroyed nearly 3,000 homes, including her own. Tucker described what it was like to grab her kids and run for their lives in the middle of the night. There was no warning. The power had gone off, our fan had stopped working, it was warm in our bedroom. I thought that was odd, but I knew it was windy and went back to sleep. And I woke up the next time around 2.30 and my husband had heard something outside and it was a policeman driving up our road yelling, you need to get out of your houses, a fire is coming. I have two kids, my daughter is 11, my son is nine, so my heart was pounding and as we put them in the car, it was almost like snow. The ash was so thick already, the smoke was so thick already. I think I was in shock about the whole thing when you don't have any warning that there could be a fire and then you're evacuated and you're worried about losing your home. It's just so surreal. I mean, I've obviously heard of people losing their homes in fire. I remember the fire up in Lake County a couple years before. The fire is now part of my story and I definitely still have trauma. You know, we are rebuilding in the same place and that gives me some anxiety. People keep saying things like, isn't it crazy this has happened? Like so unusual and I can't believe this is happening. And now I feel like because of the choices we're making in terms of our climate, I just feel like stop saying it's, this is crazy. This is so atypical. Like this is the new norm. I think the new norm is gonna be one thing after another. And that's what's really scary to me is that I know how hard it is to lose a home and have your entire life disrupted because of that. 
that was Catlin Tucker. She's currently living in the town of Sonoma while her family rebuilds their home in Santa Rosa, north of San Francisco. Lizzie Johnson, let's hear about another victim, Ed Bledsoe, 76-year-old man. Tell us his story. Yeah, so Ed Bledsoe lives up near Reading with his wife and their two great-grandchildren. And during the car fire, it swept in really suddenly. He had just gone down the street to pick up a check from his doctor. And, you know, while he was gone for those 15 minutes, his wife and those two little kids, they were four and five years old. They both burned in their home. And it shocked a lot of people just because it came out of nowhere. And they were two little kids, and they were some of the first victims of that fire tornado. And Scott Stevens, one reason that Ed Bledsoe didn't take those little kids with him that day was 113 degrees. So tell us how the high temperatures and the low humidity is kind of amplifying these fires we've seen recently in the West. Yeah, we have temperature like that and humidity. What it does, it just sucks out moisture out of fuel. So dead fuels certainly going to get drier, and we know that's happening already just because of climate change and warming. And even the green fuels can have impacts from drought. So if you actually make fuel drier, you're just going to be able to burn it easier and have higher intensity, more flame lengths. So climate is making it drier, hotter, you know, amplifying these fires. Set the stage for us, Scott Stevens, in terms of the records that we're seeing. Are there really more fires, or is it just yeah. our perception? Is it just because they're hitting urban areas? There's no doubt fire season is getting longer because of climate change, more variation, precipitation. We can have fires on the ground longer. That's absolutely true. And we're seeing fires impact people. So when fires impact people and communities and kill people, as we just heard, that, I think, elevates the whole discussion that happens around fire. And I think that's what happens with the conversation. And so why are fires coming to people now more than in the past? What is it about the last couple of years that suddenly I've been covering climate for 10 years and kind of knew about fire, but it's really become kind of a headline issue the last couple of years? We're building in areas that are just more vulnerable. A great example, Napa Valley had a fire in 81 that actually burned maybe 50, 60 houses. The same perimeter, 2017, burned 600. You know, so you're seeing so many more people living in places that are beautiful, but they're fire places. So we're seeing them really have vulnerabilities and fires hitting them. Scott Stevens, professor of fire science at UC Berkeley. While epic wildfires raged in the west, the southeastern part of the country was hit by ever more powerful Atlantic storms. In September, Hurricane Florence brought heavy rain and extensive flooding to the Carolinas. And in October, Hurricane Michael became the third most intense Atlantic storm to make landfall in the contiguous United States. In February, well ahead of hurricane season, Greg Dalton welcomed the mayors of three cities on the front lines of these megastorms. Sylvester Turner of Houston, where Hurricane Harvey had recently dumped an unprecedented 50 inches of rain. Steve Benjamin of Columbia, South Carolina. And Francis Suarez of Miami. Greg asked Mayor Suarez, who had just been elected mayor the previous fall, about his victory speech the night he won, in which he talked about jobs, transit, crime, housing, and climate. We are ground zero for uh, resiliency and, and climatic events that affect our quality of life. And I think um, what we're seeing is other parts of the world and other parts of the country are using that as sort of a counterbrand against the city of Miami. And so they're saying, you know, yeah, the city's great, the low taxes, whatever, but don't go there because you're going to be underwater. And so as mayor uh, and, and as a father, you know, I have a four-year-old and, and a baby girl that's on the way. You know, certainly um, it's a concern that it's going to impact us on the short term. It impacts us in the medium term. And certainly, of course, you wonder and you worry about the existential threats uh, to the long-term viability of the city. And, and I sort of, we passed um, right in my election what they call the Miami Forever Bond, mm -hmm. which was in part a resiliency bond where we are, our voters did something very unusual. They voted to tax themselves because the, the issue is so acute and it's so macro that, um, you know, they voted to create $200 million of resources for us to begin meaningfully uh, dealing with our climatic events, which include a range of things from uh, king tide flooding to tidal surge during hurricanes uh, to annual rainfall that is significantly greater than uh, what we've experienced and or what we have a capacity to experience. So um, I think any re mayor responsibly should have made this and should make this uh, a major priority, particularly if you're the mayor of Miami. Right. 
Mayor Benjamin, tell us how climate, is it only sort of these frontline cities that are thinking about climate change, Miami, Houston? You know, as we look around the country, where does climate rank in terms of traditional concerns for mayors, potholes, jobs, housing? It ranks very high. Uh, climate Mayor's Caucus, uh, well over 300 mayors signed up. Uh, we are, I'm, I'm also uh, helping lead as one of the co-chairs with the mayor of Salt Lake City, the mayor of San Diego, and, uh, and Mayor Suarez is a former uh, neighbor, the former mayor of Miami Beach, Philip Levine, uh, mayors for 100% clean energy, those of us who are committed to clean and renewable energy. We've been joined by 200 of our colleagues all across the country who recognize, you know, that Washington, D.C. May, may dilly-dally uh, at times, and some of that dysfunction is <coughs> to state government uh, um, policymaking or the lack of policymaking. Uh, but mayors have to get the job done every single day. Uh, and that's, that's regardless of party, uh, regardless of geography. In my city, our council voted unanimously. We vote unanimously on almost nothing, I might add. <laughs> unanimously uh, to, to invest in, uh, in stormwater, new stormwater infrastructure, $100 million, uh, to address our top uh, problem areas in, in, in our city. Um, uh, we're going to issue our very first green bond uh, you know, in the heart of the, of the Yellow South, uh, a, a deep red state. And I will tell you that our, our, our citizens are a lot smarter than people think they are, a lot more engaged, and certainly care a great deal more about preserving the earth that we've inherited, but as uh, Mayor Suarez mentioned, uh, protecting it for our children uh, yet to be here. Mayor Sylvester Turner of, of Houston, I have to admit, I was surprised when I saw that you were leading a group of mayors supporting the Paris Climate Accord, being, you know, Houston oil and gas companies. A lot of those oil and gas companies are trying to slow down the transition to a, a cleaner energy economy. So why are you back in Paris? Well, number one, it's, it's the right thing to do. Um, that's number one. Number two, we all want to leave a, a world better than the world that we inherited. Okay, and so that's important. You can the science is real. Uh, we do need to make changes. Um, and coming from Houston, the energy capital of the world, we recognize that uh, you can't just continue to do things the same old way, expect something different. That's not going to take place. And so it's in all of our best interests. And quite frankly, when you look at renewable energy and solar, there are more jobs created in that arena than in the old traditional arena. And then when we look at the fact that we are all trying to build a more resilient city, what we want in the city of Houston, we want a stronger, more resilient city. And I don't think there's a better place to be able to make the argument that you can be the energy capital of the world and you can also place a great deal of emphasis on, on recognizing that there's climate change and looking at alternatives and making your city stronger and resilient. And the, the two don't necessarily have to be at odds with one another. Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner on how his city is recovering, rebuilding, and preparing for the next megastorm. Although these hurricanes are economically devastating to the people and places they hit, in some parts of the world, rising temperatures and seas will produce more moderate weather and even economic gains. In May, Greg Dalton asked about who wins and who loses in a warmer world with Catherine Mock, a senior research scientist at Stanford, and Solomon Xiang, Chancellor's Associate Professor of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Greg asked him about the economic cost of a hot day. What we found is that over the whole 24-hour cycle, if it's above 85 Fahrenheit, we see that people earn roughly $20 less at the end of the year. Okay, now that's just from the temperature. That's nothing else. That's not related to anything else. And that's per man, woman, and child. So the analogy is to say, okay, every time it's a hot day, I take 20 bucks and I just throw it away, right? Because I'm just not gonna earn that money at the end of the year. It starts to accumulate. And then you say, okay, well, next year is gonna be just hotter and hotter and hotter. And all that money that you could have been putting in the piggy bank, right, and accumulating interest over time, that's all gone. Catherine Mock, speak more to that inequity that's happening where the poor who contributed least are getting hit first and worst. Yeah, so this question, who's most at risk, it comes down to a lot of different things when you're in a low-income country context without the state support capacity there on the ground or the level of economic development to keep things chugging ahead. But I think this question of inequity is also really, really important. What a lot of social scientists like to say is that, first of all, not all poor people are vulnerable and not all vulnerable people are poor. And the flip side of that is that wealth is not necessarily protection. So if we think about what's unfolded here in 
in the US, whether it's the fires in Northern California, Sandy in 2012 in New York City, or all of the cyclones striking the Gulf Coast over the past year, even within a city going block to block, you can have very different outcomes depending on are the elderly and infirm, are the people who are most marginalized able to access resources from cooling centers to medical attention when systems start to fail in tandem? And some of those systems, to the point of, of breaking down, uh, it's so hot in Phoenix that airplanes could not take off. It gets so hot uh, that train tracks, subways have to, have to slow down. At what point are we going to get to, to uh, infrastructure just literally melting? Melting or collapsing. I think there are many profound ways where we have built our societies for stasis and stability, and now we're in an environment of change. So what does that look like across the US? In Alaska, for example, the ground is melting, right? The permafrost is thawing, and whether it's pipelines or roads or buildings, literally the ground is collapsing. And that's something we can see already. There are astounding pictures of buildings tipping into the sea as you have the Arctic sea ice thawing, waves coming on shore. I think this question of heat is a really important one in that we certainly haven't designed everything for 118 degrees Fahrenheit in Arizona come July last year, what have you. And that plays out in many profound different ways, in particular in these environments where we've got transport in tight interconnection with electricity and in tight interconnection with communications. And when you get a failure in one of those, oftentimes it reverberates. Catherine Mock from Stanford University on winners and losers in a warmer world. You're listening to a year of Climate One Conversations. Coming up, we'll hear from more of Greg Dalton's guests and the many ways they can help us respond to the climate crisis. I realized my commitment and my task here is to change that global mood. And of course, I can't change the global mood before I change myself because as we know, all change starts with self. Adapting and thriving when Climate One continues. We continue now with a look back at a year of Climate One conversations. From fires and floods to hurricanes and hot temperatures, 2018 put climate on the front page in ways it hadn't been before. It also forced people living on the front lines of the brown economy to confront what Berkeley sociologist Arlie Hochschild calls the great paradox, people in need of help from the federal government, but who are deeply distrustful of it. Hochschild's most recent book is Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right, she was joined on the Climate One stage by Eliza Griswold, a journalist at The New Yorker and author most recently of Amity and Prosperity, One Family and the Fracturing of America. Greg Dalton asked Arlie Hochschild about ways to get around the great paradox in order to reach people whose lives have been impacted by America's craving for energy. In writing Strangers, I met an extraordinary person. His name was General Russell Honoré, and he uh, was the rescuer uh, in 2005 of the victims of Katrina, and he now has become uh, an ardent environmentalist. He's leading the environmental movement. And I watched how he talked to non-environmentalists, and he did it not by arrogantly kind of uh, disregarding the values and symbols of the people he's talking to, but by acknowledging them and doing what I would call a symbol stretch. I'll give you an example. He was talking to a group of Lake Charles uh, businessmen whose mantra was freedom, freedom. Uh, they didn't want anything to do with environmental regulation. So freedom to invest your money, freedom to make a lot of money, freedom from onerous regulations, freedom. And so he's talking to them. They don't like environmentalists, don't even like the word. And he says this, I woke up this morning and I looked out at Lake Charles. I saw a man in a boat and that man had his fishing line out. But that man is not free to lift up an uncontaminated fish. I thought, you genius. <laughs> oh, I followed him around for the next day. You know, uh, just how, does, how do we do that? We need to do that with patriotism, not say, oh, you're silly to be patriotic. No, of course not. We're patriotic too, but what does patriotism mean? Doesn't it mean a free press? Doesn't it mean an independent judiciary? Doesn't it mean democracy? I mean, you start with the symbol and you apply it more broadly. 
I think that's brilliant. I also think, you know, that one of the ways to do this is through a conversation about rights. In the book, the these two heroic husband and wife lawyers who are no environmentalists. I mean, Kendra and John Smith. Kendra is a corporate defense attorney for uh, railroads. She mostly deals with asbestos cases. And they take a case that defends Stacy and others um, against co- the companies and against the Pennsylvania, against the government itself, um, all the way up to the state Supreme Court. And they're trying, they, what their argument is, they know they're going to face a conservative Republican bench at the state Supreme Court level. And they know that that the argument that's going to work is what are our God-given rights, right? These are our inalienable rights. And in Pennsylvania, one of the rights in the Constitution is the right to clean air and pure water. And that's been on the book since the 70s, but it's largely been decorative. It hasn't had any teeth. And because of the Smith's case and their apt argument about our our right to clean air and pure water, a conservative chief justice of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court found in their favor. These are just terms to change. George Lakoff is a Berkeley linguist who also says that purity is a key to finding common ground using that conservative frame. So so is the idea of conservation. Prudent use of resources for the next generation is a much better thing than liberal. Also, here's something you might not think about. For people who are living in rural places who may not, who hold conservative values, for people who live in cities to come out to them and tell them about the environment, they're just going to flip you the bird because because oh you are so divorced from the land you care so much about the land that you live in new york city what a joke yeah that's yeah. their understanding and yeah. just i mean another way to just flip the script and see that for a second that's the understanding and it's not that they're against regulation just to follow this out for example ducks unlimited that's regulation yeah but because they love hunting yeah. and know every kind of duck and what kinds of birds and you know what number of days and what month they don't mind that regulation at all Arlie Hochschild and Eliza Griswold authors of two books that paint an honest portrait of a misunderstood America the deep divisions in our country are often at their most visible in Washington DC Yet Republicans and Democrats are not always as divided on climate as Washington politics makes it seem. In February, Greg Dalton welcomed two guests from opposite sides of the aisle who found common ground advocating for clean energy. Debbie Dooley was one of the original founders of the Tea Party and is a staunch supporter of Donald Trump. Christine Pelosi, daughter of Nancy Pelosi, is executive committee woman of the Democratic National Committee. They agree that being good stewards of the environment should not be a partisan issue. So Greg asked Debbie, who used to be on the board of the Tea Party Patriots, whether she gets any flack from her Tea Party friends as she advocates for climate-friendly choices in energy markets. No. (laughs) I mean, you know, to be honest, no. But I can remember during, I think it was President Obama's last State of the Union address, he kind of referred to me, well, you know, when he said, hey, I have, in Georgia, Tea Party members agree with me on energy. <laughs> and he talked about green eye shade, and I had a, my, my text message on my phone. <laughs> President Obama just was talking about you in his State of the Union address. No, because uh, when you stop and think about it, the key is education. When people find out the facts, oh, they're totally on board. They don't like electric monopolies. If you go into a conservative or Tea Party meeting and you make the big corporations or the electric monopolies the bad guy instead of the Kentucky coal miner the bad guy, you're going to have a much more receptive audience. And uh, I'm having great success among Tea Party activists. On the impacts of fossil fuels, you grew up in Louisiana, the Deepwater Horizon. Tell us, you know, what's happening. You know, Louisiana is feeling a lot of impacts with coastal erosion, sea level rise. Yeah. The news has moved on from the Gulf Coast from 2010, but is this impact still being felt there with the people you know? Well, just recently there was a bipartisan group of elected officials in Louisiana that are suing the big oil companies over erosion of the marshlands. And the reason marshlands are important in Louisiana is because when a hurricane comes slamming in from the Gulf, uh, you know, the marshlands are a buffer. They kind of help slow the hurricane 
down. So people are deeply concerned because there is, if you look at the map, satellite images, you can't say that the marshland and coastlines aren't evaporating. So, you know, people are waking up. It's, it's taking them time, but conservatives are waking up when it comes to that. Why is there such a gap between the Republican rank and file in the country and their elected leaders? We heard that the Trump voters support uh, research into renewable energy, want to attack carbon pollution, and yet that's not what people in Congress and even the administration are doing. Follow the money. I think she's right. I would echo that on the Democratic side before you get to me. <laughs> Same thing. Follow the money, because I think that our activists are against fracking. The strangest thing, a few years ago in 2014, when I came out against um, fracking, I actually got death threats on Twitter. Who, who threatens to kill somebody over opposition to fracking? But it was interesting because, as it turns out, uh, you know, we're California, we're San Francisco, earthquake country, hopefully. Right not during this broadcast, but when you look <laughs> at the earthquakes that are happening, the USGS studies, the earthquakes that are happening in Ohio, that are happening in Oklahoma, and that do have a connection to fracking, again, follow the money. It, we only really won the rhetorical point when the head of um, Exxon, as it turns out, opposed fracking on his block because he just bought a new house and he didn't want to contaminate his <laughs> drinking water. And so he said, see, all right, now there's a market-based solution for you, but it's still there. So I do think you have to follow the money in both parts parties and say, if you took out the big money and you took out the money that's funding the think tank-based studies and you just looked at the facts, I would bet you most of the decisions would be made closer to where the people are, which I think there is a, a climate action majority in the country. Christine Pelosi, executive committee woman of the Democratic National Committee and daughter of Nancy Pelosi. You're listening to a year of Climate One Conversations. Trying to build coalitions between Republicans and Democrats is one thing. What about trying to find common ground among 195 countries? That was the task for Christiana Figueres, former Executive Secretary to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. She led the negotiations at the Copenhagen Summit in 2009, which failed to yield a comprehensive agreement, and the triumphant Paris Summit six years later. In between, she found herself exhausted, emotionally drained, and ready to pack it in. At a Climate One event in September, Greg Dalton asked Figueres when she felt she'd hit bottom and how she got back up. I do remember um, the first press conference that I had when, you know, we were all still riling from the pain of, um, of Copenhagen. And I was asked by a, um, a journalist, and I had not done my press training, so my press team was sitting there, you know, going like, oh, my God, what is she going to say? Because the question was, so, Ms. Figueres, and when do you think we're ever, you know, do you think we're ever going to be able to reach a global agreement? And the first thing that came out of my mouth was, not in my lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> really helpful, right? <laughs> so my press team is like frozen over there. <laughs> Let's get her some press training. Um, but I had actually never thought about that question. I had never thought about the consequences of not having a global agreement. And the moment that it came out of my mouth, I kind of looked at myself, you know, when you have a distance, you're going, hold it. Who is that person who just said that? Because that is so irresponsible and it is so unacceptable. And that's the moment when I said, right, my commitment here is to change that. Because I think I had voiced the global mood on climate change. Mm. And I, I realized my commitment and my task here is to change that global mood. And, of course, I can't change the global mood before I change myself because, as we know, all change starts with self. But a few years into the job, you were having a difficult personal time. Also, yeah, I mean, everything comes together, right? It's a mm. wonderful package that life gives you. Um, the United Nations terms, at least for the convention for the climate convention or three-year um, terms. And at the end of my first term, I was asked by the secretary general, will you do a second one? And I was like, can I think about that? Because I was having a traumatic situation in my personal life. Um, I was exhausted from working 27 hours a day, eight days a week. Um, and I just thought, you know, I, this process really needs someone who can come with just incredible strength and renewed vigor. Um, and I was seriously thinking of saying, thank you, but, you know, let's find someone else. And um, as life would have it, 
my brother and sister, who have lived in Costa Rica their whole life, um, expressed their interest in celebrating my sister's 50th birthday, that was August of that year, by coming to Europe to see a glacier for the first time in their life. And I thought, wow, that is such a beautiful, right? So I said, my treat, you come up, I will organize the whole thing. So they came over and we went up in the gondola uh, in Austria. We went up in the gondola. And I remember coming to the point in the gondola where you begin to see the top of the mountain. And I just totally lost my breath because there was nothing white. There was no ice. It was a completely brown, bare top of the mountain. Um, so, you know, a completely iceless glacier is not what you expect. And the impact was so deep on me that I remember stepping out of the gondola with my brother and sister and just falling to my knees right there and saying, this is a lesson learned. It doesn't matter if I'm exhausted. It doesn't matter, you know, if I'm in full pain. I just got to do it. So I, after we got down, I called the SG, the secretary general, and I said, sir, three more years of service. Here we go. Um, and sometimes you just really need those knocks to understand that we're, we're, we're not here to just embark on the easy stuff. I mean, this is something that needs to be changed and it is going to be changed. How exactly? We never know at the beginning, but you've got to say this situation is unacceptable. It is morally unacceptable. It is financially stupid. It is environmentally terrifying. It is humanly unacceptable. Former UN climate negotiator Christiana Figueres refusing to give in to climate or personal despair. But is despair necessarily a bad place to be? As a soldier in Iraq, Roy Scranton taught himself to meditate as a way of accepting the possibility of his own death, so that he could then tell himself, okay, that's done, now what do I do? His recent book, We're Doomed, Now What?, is a meditation on what he sees as the death of our way of life. Earlier this year, Greg Dalton asked Scranton how a change of consciousness could help us come to terms with climate despair. The question that sort of sits with me and that I can't stop thinking about is, why are we so afraid of letting this go? This is all gonna change. That's manifest. And yet we cling to it desperately. We refuse to accept its passing. We can walk up to the precipice and think about it for a moment. And then we have to do something. If they get up, we have to go fix something. We have to coordinate, we got to do something, because this is it really, it can't happen like that, right? We're not going out like that. We're a better nation, we're a better civilization, we're a better species, we're, a better, we're better beings than that, right? We're not just going to let this happen to us. And then we go back right into the same things we were doing the day before, right? We have a feeling, and then we react to it, and we're stuck in this cycle of emotions and reactions, right? Because we keep denying denial. We keep saying, no, I'm not going to think about what it would mean for all of this to go away. I'm not going to think about what it would mean to my family or my friends, because it's scary and it makes you sad. And there's no good solution at the other side, right? This is all just possible and in fact, inevitable, right? We're all, <laughs> we're mortal beings, right? Loss is just a part of being human. And that this world and this way of life is evanescent, right? We're a, we're a growth of carbon scum on a rock in the middle of space, right? Which is, it's beautiful what we've done, right? <laughs> uh, and there, in that space of negativity, right? In that meditation on, on the nothing, right? And on letting all this go, going through the process of, of willing to just let it all wash away, then in that space, I think something new might emerge. That space is where new thoughts are possible, right? New visions of a future that aren't just reactions to another vision we don't like, right? 
I think going into the, the hard, dark, difficult thing and staying there, right, as much as we can, is the only way, I think, that we're going to come up with some, something new, some new way, some better way to deal with the realities of the situation, right, to deal with what is going to be objectively a difficult time for everybody. So I'm all for despair. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's a good place to be. Roy Scranton, author of We're Doomed, Now What? You're listening to a year of Climate One Conversations. Coming up, we'll cure the climate blues with some techno-optimism as Greg Dalton asks about climate-friendly innovations for getting around town, powering your cell phone, and eating meat without animals. Really what we're doing is taking what was previously medical technology, like 3D organ printing, and applying it to food. So the technology exists, it's just a matter of dropping the cost to the point where people can afford it. Cool, clean tech and more when Climate One continues. You're listening to a year of Climate One Conversations. In May, Greg Dalton welcomed three members of the new generation of entrepreneurs who are fighting global warming by advancing clean technology. Gabriel Kraw, Managing Director at Prelude Ventures, Lydia Dervasheva, an associate at G2VP, and Davida Herzl, co-founder and CEO of Aklama. Greg began by asking Davida how Aklama is using hyper-local data to better understand our environment. Last year, we published the results of a major study in partnership with our partners at Google, um, the Environmental Defense Fund, and the University of Texas, um, where we proved that our methodology, where we take our sensing platform, uh, what we refer to as our environmental intelligence platform, instrument vehicles, and then drive around communities and cities to be able to take a snapshot of pollution at sort of the urban scale, but at hyper-local resolution. So we can understand emissions down to the scale of a parcel. We can understand risk uh, to pollution exposure down to that level. And do some companies who are emitting pollution, are they trying to push back against? Because that kind of transparency hasn't been available before, right? So are the polluters pushing back? So, you know, I think uh, what's happening is that um, industry is really coming to terms with the fact that these new technologies are becoming broadly available. And instead of pushing back, what we're really seeing is, one, uh, hunger and a desire to really um, understand this data, because in many instances, it can actually help companies reduce their own emissions, uh, but also I think there's been a massive gap in the marketplace for this kind of environmental risk data, right? Environmental risk is now financial risk, um, not just to society at large, but to a lot of these companies and the emitters themselves uh, who now are, are embracing this development and really engaging in conversation with us. That's the approach that we're taking and seeing. Gabriel Craw, uh, you invested in a company called Ripple Foods uh, by a couple of uh, veteran entrepreneurs. Tell us what they're doing trying to do Ripple Foods. Well, Ripple Foods makes uh, pea milk um, and a lot of other non-dairy products. The, the two founders, each of whom were successful entrepreneurs, took a look at how uh, dairy is produced. Dairy, milk, yogurts, cheeses. It turns out there's a lot of carbon embedded in, in that production ecosystem. Raising cows takes a lot of energy and carbon, and then cows produce a lot of uh, methane in how they uh, digest their food. So if you can just take cows out of the dairy equation, uh, then you can actually save a lot of energy and impact climate change. But you're not going to do that just by telling people to, to drink something that doesn't taste good. So Neil and Adam make a delicious, frothy, uh, nutritious milk product that is made entirely out of plant protein. Um, and so this company, it impacts tons of people's lives. It, we, get, we get calls, we get testimonies from parents who are saying, wow, my kids couldn't drink milk and now they have a delicious product that they want to drink. But we don't want to just go after the, the part of the market that was already drinking dairy uh, alternatives. We're going after the mainstream market. Um, and we're, we now have traditional milk or unsweetened milk. We have chocolate milk. We have uh, vanilla milk. Uh, we have uh, yogurts that are launching. We have uh, a half and half. And not only are we, we're, we're selling this, but we're, we're saving uh, CO2 and we're, we're making a bunch of money. So it's kind of for us the best kind of thing, the best kind of company to invest in. 
Lydia Dervasheva, a lot of wealth is expected to be created in this transition from the fossil fuel economy to a cleaner economy, and yet Silicon Valley kind of walked away from clean energy. Tell right. us about that. Sure. Um, the fund that I work for is called G2VP, G2 Venture Partners, and we spun off from the Green Growth Fund at Kleiner Perkins, which used to be um, the clean tech fund started back in 2008 at the dawn of clean tech when um, everybody was investing in solar, in new biochemicals, biofuels, and that was kind of where um, all the hype was. And what ended up happening is that a lot of these investments didn't really uh, transform into these you know, unicorns that everybody was expecting. Um, not everybody made their returns. In fact, many people lost a lot of money. And that sort of led to this second generation, the clean tech 2.0 movement. Um, that's one way to call it, which is, is sort of like a new way of thinking of what clean tech means and what you can uh, perceive as clean tech. So it's not only the way we generate energy. So it's not only you know solar, wind, tidal, and fusion, and so on. But it's actually the way we use energy, the way we conserve energy, the way um, we figure out better ways to to use the resources that we currently have. And that's where a lot of new interesting business models come in. And that's where what what we are focusing at G2 is how do we leverage these new business models? How do we create new exciting startups out of technologies that already exist, but apply them in a new creative way uh, with you know, amazing teams and, and scale these companies. Saving the world, one clean tech startup at a time. Ripple Foods isn't the only company trying to reduce the carbon footprint of our diets. This summer, Greg spoke to Mike Selden, CEO and co-founder of Finless Foods, a startup that's developing a way to make tuna that comes from a lab, not the ocean and Pat Brown, founder and CEO of Impossible Foods, maker of the plant-based Impossible Burger. Greg began by cutting right to the chase. Mike Selden, how are you gonna make tuna without a fish? Cutting right to it, yeah. Um, <laughs> saying entirely without a fish is not 100% what we're doing, right? We are taking a small sample of meat from a real fish, but the idea is one sample from one fish once, pulling it out of that fish, just isolating the cells that grow the fastest and then growing them up in large quantities in the same way they grow inside of the fish. So these cells already exist inside of the system that we are taking them from, and in the system they already do this function, which is to become meat. We're just taking this process from inside of the fish and replicating it outside of the fish. So it is in every way uh, replicating the same sensory experience of meat because it is really fish meat. And what stage is your company, and when will there be products available? I think you're going to start with little pieces of sashimi, right? Uh, when are you going to be out in the marketplace? Yeah, so we're a very young company. We just started last year. Um, we've already made some, some good progress, but we're still in an R&D stage. We're doing some initial sampling. Last year in September, we had the first ever tasting of fish created without needing to kill any fish, and that was like really exciting. So since then, we've moved over to Emeryville, um, just over the water, and we ha now have a lab and a staff, and we're moving forward in order to basically drop our costs, because really what we're doing is taking what was previously medical technology, like 3D organ printing, and applying it to food. So the technology exists, it's just a matter of dropping the cost to the point where people can afford it. And so um, we intend to have a product ready for market by the end of 2019, um, but we'll probably see it actually available in mid-2020. Pat Brown, your company is more mature, uh, but tell us about your journey from Stanford medical professor to entrepreneur wearing a hip hoodie and uh, <laughs> you change your white coat for a green hoodie. So, Yeah, for most of my adult life, I was, uh, worked as a basic research scientist, molecular biologist. Um, I was at Stanford in the medical school for about 25 years uh, as a professor and loved that job and had zero interest in business and very little interest in food. I mean, I, I like to eat food, but I don't think about it when I'm not eating it. But I had a sabbatical uh, a little over eight years ago uh, that gave me time to sort of step back from what I was doing, which was, you know, basic molecular cell biology and genomics and cancer research and stuff like that, and try to think of what's the most important thing I can do. What's Given the things I'm capable of doing, which is a limited set of things, uh, how can I have the highest positive impact on the plant? And I very quickly realized that the use of animals as a technology for producing food is by such a humongous margin, nothing comes close, the most destructive technology on earth. 
probably the most uh, destructive aspect of it is that right now it occupies about 50% of its land area, either grazing or feed crops. Um, cows outweigh every wild animal, every wild vertebrate left on Earth by a factor of 10. And, and the total number of living uh, wild animals on Earth, according to the World Wildlife Fund, has dropped by half in the past 40 years. There's half as many wild animals on Earth today. And that's pretty much across the board, mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians. And it's almost entirely due to our use of animals as food. And what I realized was, you're not going to solve the problem by telling people to change their diets. And the only way to do it is to beat the incumbent industry in the market, develop a better technology that's much more sustainable, but it has to also produce more delicious, more nutritious, more affordable food, because that's how you win in the market. And I was sure that that was doable, although I didn't know how to do it at the time. But I felt like it. nobody else was really trying, and so I would just go all in on it and founded this company and started putting together the just by far the best R&D team ever to work on food and studying meat as if it were a disease. I mean, just the way that we would study cancer in my old lab, trying to understand the fundamental mechanisms that underlie the flavors and textures and juiciness in biochemical terms so that once we understand the mechanisms, we can find plant-derived proteins that are more sustainable and that have the same salient properties and make a product that outperforms meat in the ways that consumers care about. Pat Brown, creator of the Meatless Impossible Burger. Another sector where old behaviors and technologies are being challenged is transportation. Electric scooters, skateboards, and bicycles have been sprouting on sidewalks and in parking spaces all around the country. Greg Dalton talked about these new wheels in town with Megan Rose Dickey, a senior reporter with TechCrunch, and Sanjay Dastur, co-founder of Boosted Boards and CEO of Skip Scooters. Greg asked him why this is all happening now. It's a few things. So I I think there's broadly this push towards the bike lane being uh, a way to solve a lot of the transportation needs, especially of a dense city or a campus or or a dense neighborhood. And I think a lot of that comes from whether the car lane is uh, serving us better over time or worse. And I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the car lane is less and less of the best solution for certain types of trips, especially in cities. And as cities get more dense and as you know, e-commerce delivery trucks are blocking lanes or as Lyft and Uber cars are pulling over, there's a sense of, well, is the car lane really the fastest and most effective way to get around? And so the bike lane has seen a, a growth in popularity. So if you look at the e- even long-standing programs like City Bike uh, in New York, uh, you've seen ridership grow and the popularity of the program increase. And then separately, there's a technology component to this. Now everyone has a smartphone. They can hail a car just, you know, by pushing a few buttons on that phone. They can, uh, you can embed those same phone components into a vehicle for very low cost. So now these vehicles can have GPS. They can have sensors that detect if they've fallen over or not. They have full-time, you know, SIM card, cellular connections to the internet. That's all been brought about by smartphones. And so if you look at the cost of building something comparable to the Segway from 15 years ago in performance, it's much less expensive today. And then it's also being used in a way where people feel, oh, this is, this is actually a better solution for me than the car that I used to use. Megan Rose Dickey, transportation is a big sometimes number two expense for some people after, mm-hmm. after housing. You know, are scooters and bikes kind of making mobility more affordable and accessible for low-income communities? Um, I would definitely say more affordable, but um, accessibility kind of depends on the, the company itself. And like one example, so with, with Jump, Jump Bikes, uh, which sold to Uber, they, they first launched in a low-income area in the city of San Francisco to just to kind of more deliberately say like, hey, we want to make sure that this is accessible to low-income people from the get-go. And then once we know that that's going to work there, then we'll kind of broaden out the... Um, like the the pilot program, essentially. And that is part of the requirement for San Francisco's permitting process to show, okay, how are you going to make sure that that this form of transportation is accessible to underserved communities? The new urban mobility at Climate One. Now, no retrospective would be complete without a quick tour of the lightning round, the part of the show where Greg Dalton puts his guests through the gauntlet with a few hard-hitting true-false or word association questions. It's a chance for the experts to throw caution to the wind, mostly. We're going to go to our lightning round, in which we ask quick questions and quick answers. Uh, the first one for Debbie Dooley, uh, a liberal you'd like to go out drinking with. 
Al Gore. <laughs> okay. Christine Pelosi, a conservative you'd like to go out drinking with. Debbie Dooley. <laughs> <laughs> Can I change my answer to Christine? <laughs> uh, Sanjay Destour, what comes to mind when I say scooter bros? Mm. Uh, unfortunate. Megan Rose Dickey, zombie cars. Uh, dramatic. Pat Brown, grass-fed beef. <laughs> Clean call. Uh, uh. <laughs> Mayor Turner, uh, South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster. Oh, that's Mayor Benjamin's problem. <laughs> <laughs> Mayor Benjamin, suppose a relative bequeathed you a million dollars. Would you spend it on an oceanfront condo in South Florida? Absolutely. <laughs> you couldn't get one for a million dollars. Really, right? Debbie Dooley, a liberal, you'd like to take sports shooting at a firing range? Probably Bernie Sanders. <laughs> He's, yeah, yeah, Gun State, Vermont. Uh, uh, Christine Pelosi, a conservative, you'd like to introduce to dreamers in their home? Well, provided that... Ice wasn't far behind. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Pence. Lydia Dervasheva, true or false, venture capitalists are not as smart as they think they are. <laughs> false. <laughs> Davida, true or false, you have a fully stocked earthquake disaster kit in your home. True or false? False. Uh, I, I like risk. So. <laughs> <laughs> true or false, Catherine Mock. Uh, many natural scientists need to learn how to speak plain English. True. Salshang, true or false, economists are people who don't have the personality to be accountants. <laughs> true. <laughs> Mike Selden, true or false, fish is your generation's cigarettes. True, and I say that all the time. Did you take that from one of my talks? Yeah, I, I took when we talked on the phone. That's, um, there we go. This Sanjay Dastur, true or false, one day a big automaker will buy an electric scooter company. True. Last yeah. one, true or false, Megan Rose Dickey, you recently visited a tooth-straightening startup and found <laughs> out you needed a root canal. Yes, but what does that have to do with it? <laughs> I don't know. I just saw it on your Twitter feed, so I think it would yeah, close with it. Yeah, Root Canal's done. I have my crown. It's been, it was a whole thing, but yeah. Things you, <laughs> things you do for your job. Let's give them a round for getting through that lightning round. Just some of the unfiltered truth and bare-knuckled journalism that went on at Climate One in 2018. We hope you've enjoyed this look back at a year of climate conversations with some incredible speakers. To listen to any of the complete programs, visit our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast to hear more conversations about energy, the economy, and the environment. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington and Sarah Catherine Coxon run our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.